Do you ever feel like the whole world has gone insane? Yeah, you're not alone. I feel that way. In fact, the majority of people feel that way. The truth is, we were all sold this great lie that being part of a silent majority was something we should be proud of. Being a silent majority allowed a very loud, angry group of people to control everything. And problem there is, that small group of people, they're communists. I say that myself as someone who's the son of a Cuban refugee who had to flee communism. I know the reality of how important the American dream is. I know how quickly we can lose freedom. And that's why this is our last stand. I'm your host, Robbie Starbuck, and I'm gonna be diving deep on the issues and people that matter so that together we can save the American dream and once again, become a loud majority that steers the direction of this country. If you're with me and you wanna spread truth and wake up the masses, you're in the right place. Together, one piece of truth at a time, we can save America. Hey guys, today we've got a guest from, well, he used to work at the FBI. He's now suspended and has become a whistleblower against the FBI in terms of all the problems that we've seen coming up and principally what happened with the January 6th raids. And so I want to just jump right in. If you could introduce yourself, Steve, and let people know why were you suspended and why did you decide to become a whistleblower? Sure. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name is Steve Friend. I've been with the FBI since uh, 2014. Joined uh, after a few years as a police officer. Uh, my first assignment was to the Midwest uh, in Northwest Iowa, Northeast Nebraska. Somebody with a law enforcement background, that's not an atypical career path for anybody joining the Bureau. Uh, there I investigated uh, Indian reservation violent crimes for about seven years. In that time, had about 200 cases open, 150 violent criminals arrested. Uh, but after my tour of service there, relocating to Florida during the summer of 2021, Daytona Beach, which was a resident agency of the Jacksonville field office, and took that transfer with the understanding that I was going to be working violent crimes against children, child pornography investigations, child exploitation, human trafficking. Took the transfer, worked it for several months, but then at the end of the fiscal year, at the end of September of 2021, was informed that I was going to be rolled over off of the child exploitation cases and moved into national security, the Joint Terrorism Task Force that is housed in Daytona Beach, and I was going to be focusing on domestic terrorism. That happened, and what I came to find out was that most of the domestic terrorism cases that were assigned to our office pertained to the January 6th uh, cases that were stemming from Washington, D.C., my eight-year background, I was pretty familiar with a lot of the, the criminal uh, investigated procedures and rules that the FBI sets out for itself. And when I started digging into the January 6th cases, saw that the FBI was not being consistent with those rules. So I uh, made the decision that I was going to come forward to my supervisor uh, when we had some pending arrests and search warrants that were, gonna, were imminent and within a week. Uh, brought my concerns to him and, and my my theories and, and having worked through what the motivations for those inconsistencies were, said that I didn't want to participate in January 6th, said that it was a conflict with my my oath of office and uh, and also just the, the protocols that we were using to, to bring people into custody I felt were somewhat abusive. Uh, and, and after I voiced that to my immediate supervisor, was walked up the chain of command to eventually the special agent in charge of Jacksonville and uh, ultimately, they made a determination to suspend my security clearance. So right now, I sit in limbo where I am technically an employee of the FBI. I am unpaid. Uh, my security clearance is in question at the moment. 
And are you the only member of the FBI who stepped up and said something about feeling like there was a principal problem, a constitutional problem when it came to how they were treating January 6th and many of the people that have been held in solitary confinement, not given their right to a speedy trial? I'm not. Um, having been in suspended status now for uh, for over three months, had some opportunities to connect with other individuals who are whistleblowers, who are suspended agents, and and really the scales have fallen away from my eyes somewhat. Uh, and I come to find out that people voice concerns about it through emails to the supervisors, to direct comments to supervisors, and they were suspended or even uh, even terminated. So the, the, I'm not alone. Uh, I might be alone as having been somebody who's come forward to the media to to address my concerns, but I am definitely not alone there. In the suspended realm, and I'm also not alone with folks that I left behind. I, mean, I talked to the rank and file agents, and then they've not shared my willingness to necessarily come forward, but they certainly share my opinions, my sentiments about the way that the FBI is pursuing the January 6 investigations. Will you walk us through that process of, you know, was there a factor leading to your decision to come out and, um, you know, give a voice to this? And what has that whistleblower process been like? How have you been treated? Has it been something that you would still stand by? You regret, you know, the pros and cons. Share share with us the, that experience. It's definitely been a bizarre world for me for the last three months. So the 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 jits of my my complaint about the January sixth investigations is it should be one case that the FBI works. Uh, instead, they elected to open up a different case for every single subject. They made one case in day eight hundred to a thousand cases. Then they decided to spread those cases around to the field as opposed to working them from Washington D.C. on paper. Uh, but in effect, what's actually happening is there's a task force in Washington, D.C. that's giving marching orders to the field. And and basically, that's given the impression and, and given a statistical back uh, backing to this narrative that the country's seen that there's this rise in domestic terrorism threat around the country over the last couple of years, when really all the statistics that back that up are coming from the January 6th case. So that's to me, was really important. I wanted to get that out to as many people as I could. It's the political spectrum. No matter what your, your news source of choice is for consumption, um, I think that that is a ma major story that people should be familiar with because the FBI's job at its root is law and order. And as in diametrically opposed to that, what's going on is the FBI is contributing to raising the temperature of the room. I and mean, it's making everybody think that literally half the country are domestic terrorists. And that's that's a problem. We can't We can't have a country if that's the case. So I've come out and I've, I've tried to talk to, to, to various media because I, I think that that's a really important bit of information that everybody should be entitled to, again, regardless of who you voted for in 2020 uh, or any other election. The actual nature of my complaint process was after I was suspended, the, the next day filed my official uh, whistleblower complaint with the Office of Special Counsel, with the Office of the Inspector General, uh, and also provided that information to Senator Grassley, Senator Johnson on the Republican side for the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee and to uh, Senator Durbin on the Democrat side. He's the, he's the chairperson. And, and also gave information to, uh, to Jim Jordan because he has openly talked about receiving lots of uh, whistleblower information. I have since found out that both the special counsel and the inspector general are going to decline to pursue my complaint. They, they don't deem it worthy. So right now, I'm basically at the mercy of Congressman Jordan holding some hearings next year. Uh, and hopefully prioritizing whistleblower protection over other issues that uh, seem to be shinier objects. And then I'm also reaching out to the media because ultimately I've, I've stuck my neck out. I've, I've thrown my career away. 
Um, I want it to be for something that's meaningful, and and I, I genuinely do have a belief that my job is to uphold the Constitution and, and preserve law and order, and this is going to be the thing I have to do to do it, and that's the decision that I need to make. Well, you know, this was something I planned to talk about, but since you bring it up, um, I do think it's important just people know this is an aside, not a question or anything, just just a fact for people from my own experience in politics. One of the most dangerous things about politics is show ponies. And we have a whole lot of show ponies in Congress and really in every facet of government who are more interested in getting sound bites because that's what you get fundraising off of is sound bites than they are in actually making real change happen. And that's something that I would encourage everybody to look into your own rep, look into the people that you give money to. Look at what real lasting action are they creating through their actions? Are they just moving on every week to the new shiny object that can bring in donor dollars? Because if it's just, hey, I need this news clip so we can raise more money, that's not a good rep. Might be a good fundraiser, not a good rep. And I think that's one of the big changes in the future we've got to see in terms of voters and primaries. They've got to be very watchful of who's a show pony and who's a workhorse. Because workhorses are going to prioritize things that might not be sexy on the outside. They might not be great for fundraising. They might not be the top issue of the day in terms of what the media is covering. But they're the issues that create lasting change. And I think that's something that people have to, you know, be really nuanced and thoughtful about. But, you know, moving on to, to you know, sort of this, this entire subject, I think, goes to one thing for me. I believe that throughout our institutions, we're undergoing an ideological sifting where the administration and power, um, the regime rather, they're sifting through every institution to get rid of people who I would consider our best ideological warriors, people who are not willing to go against their own integral values. They're not willing to go against the Constitution. They're people who are principled in every way. And I always ask this question to people. We just had an episode last week with a bunch of unvaccinated soldiers who have stood up to the mandate and are willing to lose everything for what they believe in. And I'm going to ask you the same thing I asked them. Do you believe that this is an ideological sifting that's occurring that is purposeful to shake out a certain ideology from our institutions in order to make it easier to consolidate power and really carry out the tyrannical things that they want to carry out, that we've seen them beginning to carry out? Um, what can you say to that? Without question, I agree with you. The uh, really uh, the things kind of became evident to me in October of 2021. The, it was when the vaccine mandate was uh, rolled out across the federal government, and there was this option that was put before us that we could elect for uh, to request a religious accommodation um, or a medical accommodation, and we had to attest to whether or not we were vaccinated against coronavirus. So uh, I'm unvaccinated. Um, I requested a religious accommodation put in all the paperwork, put in the attestation, but I was uncomfortable doing it. And I even remarked to my wife at the time, I said, they're building a registry of people who are outwardly religious. And then they, and when we applied for it, it was even asking you what your religion is and you know, what are specific scriptures that you can cite. So they were very, very, there was a lot of scrutiny that went into this. And I even heard later on that there was comments made about, well, there seems to be a lot of people finding Jesus now that the vaccine's going to be required. Uh, and so I was very uncomfortable with where things stood because I felt like they were going to single out folks who held certain certain religious beliefs or beliefs about you know bodily autonomy. And then you know we flash forward to now, right prior to my suspension, I had sit down meetings with people that were in pretty you know elevated levels of management in the FBI, 
and uh, and cited, look, I, I've been trained to identify potential abuses of power. It's incumbent on me to is, to uphold the Constitution and to call us out if I believe that we're violating people's rights. And I said, my duty is to the Constitution and to my oath of office. And the response was, your duty is to the FBI. So well, that you know, says what's interesting is all of these people who are out there saying things like that, like what you said, where they say, oh, there's a lot of people coming to Jesus now uh, with these religious exemptions to get out of getting the COVID vaccine. Well, I think it's funny that a bunch of godless people who do everything possible to worship a hedonistic sense of reality over anything biblical or godly in any way are suddenly the arbiters of who is actually religious and who actually believes in Jesus and who actually has a religious objection. And shockingly, it's nobody apparently because they've decided that even chaplains in the military cannot get a religious exemption. I mean, when you're at the point where you're telling pastors, no, your religious beliefs are not real, you've jumped the shark. And it's very clear. And the problem, the real problem is the media is not communicating this to the public. And the other problem is when you look at the Democratic Party, over 50% were willing to take criminal action in polling against people who were unvaccinated. That is something that is core to the ideology of one party now. And it doesn't matter where you stand on every other issue. You know, if you stand on this issue alone as saying, you know, this is something that constitutionally we must protect is number one, religious freedom, but secondary to that, the ability to decide what you inject in your body or don't inject in your body, then you cannot in good conscience stand with the Democratic Party of today. And that's sad because I think that honestly, if we're being real with each other, even though I'm very opposed to the Democrats of today, I do think that it is healthy in a society to have multiple parties. I think it's healthy to have multiple viewpoints. I think it's healthy to debate everything. I don't expect everybody to be the same as me. I don't expect them all to think exactly what I think. But I am going to stand up against absolute extremism that seeks to strip rights from everyone. And that's exactly what they're doing through the way they've carried out all this COVID tyranny. You know, what would you say if the FBI has been the success rate of religious exemptions? Do you know of people who've had them approved or not? Or is it kind of like the military where almost nobody's getting approved? I don't know if any single one has actually been adjudicated. We put in the requests and they were never addressed. The only contact I had back was I was assigned a particular advocate who was going to, they've made clear, well, we're not going to argue for you or against you. We're going to facilitate the discussion that's going to happen between FBI leadership and you and determine if this is going to be a, you know, a, re a reasonable accommodation that we can make for you. Uh, and then there was just no follow up. And that's well, that certainly goes along with the theory that this is an ideological sifting because that's exactly what you would do. If you're not going to fire all of the people who put those in, you would create a list and you would compartmentalize the information from those intel agents so that they wouldn't be able to you know get critical information or things that you wouldn't want them to get because you'd want them on the outs of anything that they may try to blow the whistle on so this goes to you know further questions i had i'm familiar with a lot of the training tactics in the intel community one of which is psychological priming uh the cia the fbi many other agencies in the intel world they teach their agents psychological priming it's something we see happening at social media companies. So there's been a lot of big stories recently with the Twitter files in terms of the FBI's involvement at Twitter in getting things they want. And one of the things I noticed was they were psychologically priming employees at Twitter who were not intel agents and were not smart enough to pick up on what they were doing 
in order to get actions they wanted, which included the censoring of American citizens. So have you noticed those tactics being used through these agencies to, to prime not just social media companies, but large corporations to reach the goals of certain people in the Intel community? Nothing firsthand. I mean, I can I just have my own observations as a citizen. Uh, I think that if you're going to talk about ultimately like grooming of a uh, of just the perception of competence at the FBI, that has been done you know since time immemorial. You know, I I, I stood in the FBI and looked around on, mul- on many occasions and said, I I can't believe that there are certain people that are able to work here because they're just not functional human beings. And you know. I would make a phone call to somebody and identify myself as an FBI special agent, and they would, without question, turn over their personal information to be the things that just stunned me. I said, just based on me saying I'm an FBI special agent. So certainly the FBI's reputation as being this stellar organization that is beyond reproach and of the utmost integrity is something that is, I, I, at this point, I think is just a grooming feature because it's borne itself out to not be true. I also want to say that there is a, a information industrial complex has started to emerge here, similar to that military industrial complex, that scientific industrial complex that was that uh, President Eisenhower spoke about in his farewell address. And I think that we can tack on now the the information to that. And by that, I see that there's this, this gross marriage of the intelligence communities, the law enforcement communities on the federal government, uh, private sector, tech companies, and this surveillance capitalism that has now emerged as such a lucrative you know, approach to, to industry. And they're, they're all kind of working together in the symbiotic relationship. They're able to play accountability hot potato by saying, well, the government is somebody we respect because they have this great integrity. So they give us guidance. We have to follow it. It's not really our decision. And then the government says, well, we're not telling them what to do. We're, they're a private company. We're not interfering with them at all. We just issue guidance that you know anybody can take if they want. So they're able to all avoid accountability that way. And they're consistently shifting this Overton window in one political direction, which now is heavy left. Well, I want to I wanna just pop in. That's not your opinion. That is a fact. I'm reading from a paper here. Um, when you look at each one of the social media companies, let's see here, Facebook has at least 115 highly ranking employees who are former CIA, FBI, NSA, or DHS employees. Twitter had at least dozens throughout recent years. This continues at other social media companies. These are not low-level CIA, FBI, NSA, DHS employees who then moved on to big tech. You understand why they did this. I understand why they did this. Can you communicate to the audience why we're seeing so many high-level intel agents go to work at social media companies? Uh, Sure. And and before we even get into that, uh, the one that everybody's overlooked, which is the biggest, is AWS. Amazon Web Services hosts all of the, the information that they, the government has. So that they're not even needing to communicate back and forth with the government in order to provide one to the other. So that's one that I, I'm hoping that there's going to be some sort of pulling back of the curtains on. But unfortunately, I think our current Congress is just going to continue to give them money. If I'm being perfectly honest, even with the Republican majority, you know, sadly, I don't think we have enough strong Republicans who are going to be willing to go fight that battle because you are correct. Nobody talks about it, but Amazon and their cloud services and everything, they are one of the principal threats, I think, in terms of intelligence and national security, because they're pretty much getting everything at this point. I mean, they're hosting everything that you can imagine when it comes to the DOD, secret programs, things like that. And 
if you think about the information that they're able to get their hands on and, you know, the people that they're able to potentially, you know, not saying they're doing this, but potentially be able to blackmail with the information that they may have access to, that's dangerous stuff, really dangerous stuff. And it's flying under the radar entirely because, again, the sexy thing is social media because... You know, Elon Musk bought Twitter and everybody's on it. And none of us realize that we're on Amazon's cloud services and their web services every day. So it kind of flies under the radar. So I'm glad you brought that up. But when when you look at this, you know, it, it goes again to an ideological sifting. And I think that it really is part of a larger plan the federal government has in current form where the regime on the left would like to be able to segment citizens in as many ways as they possibly can, because that's how you create division points. And I think the more division there is, the better in terms of their view, because then you're able to keep people focused on something else instead of focused on, hey, what are all the ways my government is failing me? And I think you see this across the board. You know, if you look at even your case, in your case, you were supposed to be stopping child sex trafficking, child sexual exploitation, CSAM on the internet, um, which commonly referred to as child porn, but instead they pulled you off and had you go fight their political war to try to raid January 6th, uh, you know, people. And, and that was something you were unwilling to do, thank God, because we need these people to stand up and say, this is wrong, the focus should be over here. You know, I just saw Rep Ted Lieu in the House, a Democrat from California, say that essentially... You can't criticize the FBI because they they do plenty and they are fighting child sex trafficking. They are fighting child porn or CSAM on the internet. What do you say to somebody like Ted Wu? I said, hey, if you have 80 agents working on censoring Americans on Twitter, then you have 80 agents that you should have working these child sex abuse cases instead of going to try to censor American MAGA grandmas on Twitter. What do you think? Uh, I think just for just just a reference on the n amount of manpower Haiti agents is. Uh, my my uh, first field office was the Omaha field office responsible for all of Iowa, all of Nebraska. There were 75 agents that were responsible there. So that's the entire size of a, a, a FBI field office that was dedicated just to calling through Twitter feeds. Yeah, I saw the, I saw Mr. Liu's comments uh, about, uh, about Matt Taibbi uh, and, and the Twitter files. And, uh, and and Matt has been to my house. He's a, he's an honest journalist, uh, you know, regardless of you know, where he falls in the political aisle. And he was essentially accusing of lying about what the FBI did as far as reassigning agents from child exploitation to work domestic terrorism in January 6th. First-hand knowledge happened to me. I was told that uh, child pornography investigations were going to be considered a local matter and that I needed to focus on domestic terrorism, which is IE January 6th. So that, that that's just a politician running cover. I mean, I know he's a, a member of the Judiciary Committee and, and he has, and certainly everything that's happened you know, in social media up till when Elon Musk purchased Twitter and everything that's happened with the investigations that have gone against the, the people that went to the Capitol on January 6th have all borne out well for him and, and to support his narrative about this this rise in domestic terrorism. So he's going to go to the mattresses on that uh, when probably the, the, the more prudent thing to do was just to keep his mouth shut and wait for the news cycle on Christmas to happen. Uh, so... So it, I, don't th I don't think that was that was a wise on his part. And I can tell you firsthand, it happened to me. And I can tell you that uh, yesterday, I believe it was, the FBI issued a, a statement about you know the rise in child pornography cases that we're seeing nationwide. So it's it's just simply not true. That narrative is that he's, he's saying is, is false. 
Right. I mean, and it's alarming. The mainstream media like The Atlantic, um, you know, have said that child trafficking is a conspiracy theory. We have more reports than ever before in history of suspected child sexploitation, uh, sexual exploitation, sextortion, um, sexual abuse reported to NICMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, who, as far as I'm aware, are the only um, arbiter, you know, collecting these these in crucial data points. Um, and so I kind of want to backtrack before they, you know, switched you to the January 6th step before that became overtly the focus where they made these, you know, changes. What was the FBI culture like in response to child exploitation issues? I mean, was there a acknowledgement that this this is an epidemic in America? The demand is so great here, it almost surpasses drug trade. I mean, is there an awareness of it or is there just a, a complete political bias and focus, laser focused on things like January 6th or, you know, weaponizing, you know, this this prestigious institution in our, in our country. I mean, I want to know, like, clearly, what is the difference here? Is it ignorance or is this politically motivated? I think child pornography investigations uh, and also is, is basically considered like a step cousin to Indian reservation cases. And having worked both, I kind of got the, the feeling that when you're in it, you realize how crucial the work is and how the volume of this case work is. Um, outside of that, the the FBI, you know, it, it throws resources at it, but it's sort of like keeps them at arm's length. Because I think the, the people that don't work it and in the public at large, it's easier to pretend it doesn't exist. The FBI is great at getting headlines and they want to always have that big case that they can, they can get the PR hit for. Curiously, you never really see it for child pornography investigations. And there's certainly a ton of them out there. And there's ones that you, know, you would think would pique the public's interest if they you know, bring down some super huge pedophile ring or you know, a big website, something like that. Um, but you never really see them. And I think that they've made the calculated decision that the public doesn't even want to know about these things. It's just easier to look away, look in another direction and, and, and applaud and pat the back of the FBI for bringing down a drug dealer or you know, a big public corruption case. Uh, but having been in in there and doing the work and you see the volume of it and you could take the entire FBI and double the size of the FBI and devote everybody just to child pornography cases and it wouldn't be fully aside. It's it's just that voluminous. So, you know, I, I, it definitely became a passion project for me once I uh, relocated to Florida. Unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to, to, to work it, you know, great length. Um, I was able to continue doing it off the books uh, when I was reassigned to domestic terrorism because you know, some people did actually see the value of it and, and say that it was worth pursuing. Um, but the individuals that do work it are super passionate about it. It's just that the people that are in positions to make the decisions about allocating resources uh, would prefer to put those elsewhere. And I saw that firsthand in my field offices in Jacksonville. There was a full squad of agents that were working child pornography investigations. It was broken down. And they kept two individuals that were continuing to do it. And everybody else was moved to violent crime. And I was moved over to domestic terrorism. Absolutely. And I mean, there's no greater evidence of that. I mean, and I, I'm not negating all the hard work that, you know, the the few, the good ones that are fighting these issues and how the scope of it and how hard it is that they're not doing their job. But the resources from the top that aren't allocated to, you know, adequately address this crime, we're not seeing any reduction. We're not seeing any you know, fruits of of these these efforts. It's only getting increasingly and exponentially worse. Um, and I saw, I think, a collaboration between NICMEC and FBI today where they put a little, you know, blue square out essentially saying, recognizing this is a problem um, and children are being, 
you know, recruited online and there's, you know, extortion cases that are through the roof, especially as kids are home for the holidays, spending more time uh, online. But, you know, it's it's interesting to me, particularly in, in Indian reservation cases like that. And I wanted to ask you about this. From my experience advocating for certain families, when they're in a Indian reservation, there is almost like a firewall that is impenetrable as far as our United States, you know, laws kicking in. Is that one reason why FBI would be in charge of, of those reservations? I mean, what are some of the limitations? Say you have a child sexual abuse case or a child exploitation case on an Indian reservation. I mean, what are the limits for local law enforcement outside the reservation? Is it all internal? Why is the FBI involved? You know, can you explain that process? Yes, it's it's definitely a really it's an interesting process. It's considered a special jurisdiction. So the the Native American reservations are, um, for lack of a better term, they're an independent country within our country. Um, there, but because through retrocession they've come back under the fold, um, there's just certain features that they can be independent of, and, and some that they can't. So you have a, a tribal council, which is essentially like a like a town government, uh, city council. You have a tribal police department. You have a tribal uh, court system. They have their own set of laws. There, and but they're limited because they can only arrest Native Americans and they can only charge things sort of at a misdemeanor level, regardless of what the crime is. So I, I've seen people uh, and check their tribal criminal history and, th- and those records are not even shared with, with the national database. So I had to independently verify, you know, what was going on in paper versus what I could just, you know, call my radio room and have them run somebody's criminal history for me. That was not included. And it would say so-and-so was convicted of rape and got 40 days in jail and $100 fine. So they're limited on who they can arrest. And then the Indian Reservation actually operates within a county. So you would think maybe the sheriff of that county would want to get involved. But the county prosecutors are really loath to, to participate if, it, if it's going on on the reservation. Even though it's within the county, they kind of steer clear of that. So the FBI has to get involved uh, with, with things that are serious crimes where there's a Native American victim. And also has to get involved in, regardless of the severity of the crime, is if the perpetrator is not a Native American. Because if somebody's a Caucasian male could walk out and commit an armed robbery or a, a violent felony, and the tribal police could not arrest him, could maybe maybe detain him temporarily until the FBI can respond. So I had cases that were just misdemeanor assault cases, but because the individual was not a Native American, the tribe could not pursue charges against him. So it's just really interesting and there's all these matrices that you know decision trees that are drawn out for you before you can even determine if you can take a case or not or who would be the best route to do it the other thing that's that i want to go to go back on um, when you're talking about with the severity with the the, the fbi takes with child pornography investigations it's one of the few violations that uh, individuals can kind of beg out of because they don't want to be involved in, and no there's no judgment and you can you can be moved off of that um and when i moved to florida and said hey look I'll take those cases. I, I think they're righteous cases. There was like this uh, relief because like we have a guy who'll take it. So nobody else in my office had to take anything pertaining to child pornography. They could just give me any cases that they were carrying on their books that they were sort of looking out of the side of their eye at. And I said, I, I would take it. But I thought I do think it's interesting that, you know, I, I could say, hey, look, not for me. I, I, I The whole thing grosses me out. I'm uncomfortable with it. I've got kids and just, I can't do it. And efforts would be made to accommodate that. But I said- hey, I'm really uncomfortable with the, we might be infringing on people's constitutional rights and we're not following our own rules and we might be abusing people with January 6th investigations and I was walked out the door. 
Unbelievable. Yeah, I, I do want to ask you one more question just about you know, Indian reservations, because I think it's an undercovered topic. And, you know, my experience has has shown me that kids who are living on res, uh, reservations, um, indigenous communities are at exponential risk of sexual exploitation. Is that, in your opinion, a result of the fact that that is an increased vulnerability that perpetrators know that those crimes are less likely to be, you know, have any accountability or, you know, consequences for them? Or is there a culture um, that, you know, kind of hides what happens on that reservation, you know, for optics, you know, what what insight do you have as to why these numbers are so high and, and go underreported? Um, and there's less faces of indi- indigenous children who've been victimized that we even know about. Well, I investigated uh, three different Native American tribes, so I can't speak to, you know, the entire Native American population in the country. But in my experience, children are at a significant risk, a, a heightened risk, I would say. Uh, and that, that, is downstream from a couple of things. Uh, one, we have laws in this country that prevent the government, the state government, from removing a Native American child from a Native American reservation and placing them in a different house. On occasion, it would happen, and then an effort would be made to bring that that child back to the Native American reservation. And there's the argument is, oh, we want to preserve this culture, but invariably, you return kids to poverty. When you return them to abusive households, that, and the the reservations are just awash in alcohol abuse, drug abuse, gambling addiction, sexual abuse, and they just it's it's a grab trap. They cannot escape from it. And even if an effort is in good faith made, and and I interacted with families that were you know in a town that was thirty miles away that had taken in a foster child as a Native American and had provided them love and care for an extended period of time, and they had formed this bond. And the state was going to remove that child and put them back with a, a family that you know had a dozen children living with a grandmother who was on uh, on benefits and didn't have an income because we had to we had to preserve the Native American culture. We had to obey this law. So that's that's a huge problem because the kids can't be removed. Um, secondly, I think that there's also this tendency to uh, to defend the offender. I saw it repeatedly where there would be a child would come forward. Um, you know, 14, 15 year old girl, or, or even down to eight, nine, 10. And they would say, you know, uncle sexually abused me. And there would be right away, uh, well, you know, it happened to me too. So it's just, just the way it is, uh, would be one defense. Another would, would just be stand by your man. And, and that, that kid is lying. And it's, you know, it, that does happen. I mean, kids do make allegations, but you know, an eight year old being able to, to, to connive that, they can try the entire story. Um, to, to me, just w- was was ridiculous, especially in the volume of times that I saw it happen. So there's always this trend to defend the potential offender, and and uh, ultimately the defense that I saw a lot of times from offenders who even admitted to what they did, they said was, well, well I was drunk, so you know I, I can't be held accountable. And that was they looked at me in the eye, and they thought that that was an acceptable thing that I would walk away and say, oh, okay, no harm, no foul, you know, you blew. You, you didn't realize, didn't realize right. you were drinking, no problem. Right. All the time. All yeah. regularly. Right. I mean, it was a frequent question of uh on a scale of one to ten, how drunk were you? And you know, you'd get seven. Well, uh, how many beers does it take you to get to seven? And they would say something like, Oh, it takes me like twelve or fourteen beers. Right. And 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 the the other aspect is like they lack the infrastructure. You know, they're they're not doing forensic rape kits or anything like that. I mean, they, it's almost like a, a socialized country with healthcare there with you know they they don't have 
the same things that you know we would have access to in other parts of America, which also increases those vulnerabilities and maintains that culture of like the status quo of just oh well you know shake it off, uh, yeah it's going to be fine kind of thing and, and blaming the victim. You could tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think this has a big part to play in a lot of the other societal problems for kids on these reservations. When you look at education outcomes and things like that, there's there's just such a large amount of trauma happening in in these environments where there seems to be a lack of accountability for abusers. And I think when you have that amount of trauma, it's obviously not a place that's conducive to learning or safety in any way. And I think that's why you see the numbers you see in terms of very few people being able to graduate with with good grades and being able to sort of be proficient at the next step. And it's not because there's something inherently wrong with with Native Americans or anything like that. In fact, you look at the education outcomes previous, they were better than they are now. And so something changed in the culture. And I think a, a lot of that is a lack of accountability uh, when it comes to abuse and trauma. And I, I don't think there's been anything to disprove that point. Am I wrong? Right. Yeah. And having access to care is crucial. And, but those cultural norms also prohibit that that being a priority in this in, in a lot of those reservations. So well, you reminded me of something. Mm-hmm. So being this is a question more for you, Steve, but being a great admirer of my wife's work, I've come to understand the amount of child sexual abuse and CSAM that is being procured or perpetrated by people who work at places like the FBI is right. stunning. It's jarring. It's far more than people expect. And there's very little accountability. Why do you think that is? Um, I don't know how much you know about this, but I, when Ted Lieu said what he said about the FBI, essentially making it sound like we're not allowed to criticize the FBI, my response included a bunch of news stories of FBI agents who themselves perpetrated child sex crimes, and they lacked accountability in many of those cases. Why do you think that's happening? And also, is our justice system, in your opinion, too soft on child predators? I'll answer the second part first. Yes, way too soft. I, and I live in Florida, and uh, there's it, they're basically medieval when it comes to hands-on offenses. Um, I, I don't see any reason uh, why you know, that can't be applied nationwide. I I want to see the person raise their hand, with the exception of Kentonji Jackson, about why individuals who are consuming child pornography, you know, it, it doesn't present a threat to the to the country. Uh, I don't care if you make an argument that well, I I never would never do that to a child. That was done to a child, and you were a beneficiary of it in your own sick way. I don't know why we have a place for you in society. I think you should be buried in a hole, and we should bury the hole uh, if we don't actually make it a capital offense. I agree. You know, I was saying, and I've said this a lot, actually, I don't understand why a politician has not run on a platform of death penalty for pedophiles. And because I think this is a universal thing, you know, this is just my anecdotal experience. I think there's very few people who would go, no, actually, I would like to continue to pay taxes in the sums of millions and millions of dollars to keep pedophiles alive. And here's the thing. Yes, there needs to be a a burden of, of evidence because you can't go around just killing everybody who's accused of it because it will be weaponized then. But you meet that burden of proof. I think that it should be an immediate execution, honestly, in, in, a, in a justice system that, you know, gives you that speedy trial in front of your peers. If you're proven guilty... That's what I think the consequence should be, because I'm also of the belief you look at 
all of the psychological work that's been done, this is a pro-science belief. This is an irredeemable group of people who are not going to change. It is not changeable. They may suppress it for a year or two at a time, but they will perpetrate again. You look at the recidivism rates, they're awful. These people are predators, and there's something wrong that we can't fix. So I think that the the justice really needs to be on the side of the victims, and that means the death penalty for, for these cases. You know, that's just something that, that for me... People like to moralize until you ask them, what would you want if you're, if if you're a child? child and child. then, you know, the, the answer changes. And, and um, you know, I could tell you, I, I when I first got brought over to, to work that violation, I, uh, I I sat down with a really experienced agent. He'd been doing it for a decade. And that's that's really, really rare. Most people get burned out pretty quick. And I just asked him, I said, you know, what is the percentage of these guys that when you sit down with them, they confess? And he was like, every one of them, every said, I think in my entire career, two of them haven't. And one of them, even he gave me enough in there that I, I had tantamount to a confession. And I said, why? He's like, well, because it's ones and zeros. It's all there. It's undeniable. So if you're, for all the pushback, uh, you know, these, these, these projects to, uh, to free people who are on death row because they've been wrongfully convicted. I think that, you know, that's a violation that would stand up to, to any sort of scrutiny just, just by the fact that the evidence is irrefutable and then and the violation itself is so so gross that uh you know again raise your hand if you want to be the person that says no we need to be you know grace needs to uh, needs to triumph over justice here um, and i guess unless you're supreme court justice a bunch of democrat hands just went up yeah. over america i would I, I would say this i do think it would be the greatest blow Two, the numbers skyrocketing in terms of abuse because so many of these people who think about going to view child sexual abuse material, knowing that the death penalty follows, may never go and do it for the first time. Mm -hmm. Because as right. learned from her work, it's that first time that people, you know, regular porn isn't good enough anymore, isn't doing the job, and they go search out something worse, they end up on something like that. And they go further down that path and it does something pathological and changes them in ways that are very dangerous, obviously. I think you may actually, you know, cut off a lot of those people from the very beginning knowing, ooh, if I go down that route, potential death penalty. And I think that that's something that um, if, you, if you made that the reality, it would greatly reduce the number of people who are going and searching this stuff out. Because you look at the numbers, I think people just are not aware of the number of people who are actually seeking this stuff out. It's in the tens of millions. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly dangerous. And that's at a bare minimum. It actually could be more than that. You know, you look worldwide, but it's at least at the tens of millions that are verifiable who are looking at this stuff. Right. And thus the demand is coming from America. And I wanted to ask you, Steve, you know, one of the things that I see a lot in my work is working with social media companies when there is, you know, CSAM on their platforms. In some cases, they're profiting off of it. They're taking out ads on it. The, the victims can't get their the CSAM down. That This is child sexual abuse material, horrific rape, you know, things to that effect. Even Pornhub. Yet Pornhub has a Twitter account still to this day. You know, so where's the accountability with Section 230, you know, basically providing blanket immunity to all of big tech for their violations, their complicity, their enabling of this problem of child sexual exploitation. So what what was your interaction like in if at all if you deal with these social media platforms having to work with them to address some of the child sexual exploitation content that you came across? 
they did they did a pretty good job um at least in, in providing information to nick mick uh and these cyber tips that we would receive um but uh, you know who knows really defining good job i mean we were definitely inundated with them as they came through but you know that might have only been a fraction of what was actually going on in these sites which is probably 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 closer to reality than than we would uh than we we would like to believe uh but once that tip came in and we opened a case and we and we deemed it to be worthy of investigating uh just having to go back and forth with them and, and get the information they just seemed and, and I understand they want to protect privacy um, but uh, they they always you know, shoot out these user agreements of people that are thousands of pages long and everybody agrees to them you're telling me you can't put a you know a clause in there that says you know if, if there's a legitimate law enforcement investigation considering CSAM um, that uh, you forfeit your your right to a, to the Fourth Amendment, and we can't hand over everything. I'm a civil liberties guy, but do think that there's some wiggle room there. So uh, we would go back and forth, and you know, we would craft our search warrants and then our subpoenas with them. But invariably, you know, they would find ways to kick them back, and it was it was very frustrating. It was very time consuming. The actual nuts and bolts of a of a CSAM investigation, they're not complex. They're it's an ocean of cases, and that ocean is like an inch deep. It, it's a very turn and a wrench. It's a few steps, and from from initiation to conclusion. Um, the entire process, if you had it at your fingertips, you could knock out an entire investigation short of interviewing the subject within a day. But because we have to send the processes off and we have to work to review what comes back, I mean, you're talking months and months and months in order to bring down one offender. And like you said, there's this is millions of people there. And it's only growing, especially when we lock kids home and give them nothing but a tablet or an iPhone for a year and a half. And sometimes it's, it's not even stopped in some of these cities. We we're seeing these sextortation cases that are getting blown out of the water, uh, and we were told basically we can't do anything about them. It's it's no different than the Nigerian print scheme that you know was all the rage in the '90s. Uh, well, these kids are being extorted, but uh, you know it's, it's overseas, and you know we just kind of have to let that one go and tell them, "Oh, be careful with the internet. Let this be a life lesson to you." Right. And I, I just love all the millions of dollars being spent educating the American public on the real dangers of these things. At the same time, while big tech is allowed to invite kids on the platform where most of the sexual exploitation is occurring. And like you just mentioned, you know, if it's taking 10 days, the crime's happening in real time. You're not going to catch those perpetrators. It, that process is so long. But with AI ability, we could, you know, streamline this process. But it requires big tech to be willing, you know, to work with people who specialize in this, like ICAC detectives, like special agents like yourself. So, you know, thanks for going down in the weeds with me uh, on that. I, I really wanted, you know, people watching to understand the nuances of this, of how hard it is to to locate a child, to prosecute a crime, to to get discovery, to get big tech to work with you. I mean, it's, it's amazing, honestly, that you could even get to a prosecution uh, with cases like this because of how many hoops, you know, you have to jump through. And you look at a city like Nashville, we have only two ICAC detectives for all of Nashville and how many crimes are occurring, you know, with children every single day. It, it's it's a joke, you know, so thank you for, you know, bringing that to light. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same federal level. I mean, getting a prosecutor to actually bring forward a case, they almost say, we don't want to take it because then we set a precedent that we're going to take those cases. And we just know there's so many out there. We want to do other stuff. Actually, I have two questions I lied. Uh, first question is this. Why do you believe, and corruption's the easy answer, it's, it's the obvious answer, but I think it's deeper than that. But why do you think the FBI has not used the same channels they use in so many other cases to leak stories 
to expose the truth about Jeffrey Epstein and the powerful men and possibly women involved in this operation. I mean, this was an operation to exploit young women, young girls, and to, to you know, sexually abuse them. So why has the government essentially helped these people cover up their crimes? Because that's what's occurred. They've, they've helped a group of very powerful people cover up their crimes, including the rape of young, young girls and women. Why? What, what is at the root of this? How poisoned is this tree? Well, I mean, Ghislaine Maxwell got convicted uh, of trafficking kids, but we don't know too who, and that's that's just fine. We're going to all live with that answer. Uh, just like, you know, we don't know what happened in Las Vegas shooting. We'll just move on to the next thing. I think that somewhere along the line, that that list is somewhere, uh, and the right people who have access to that list uh, don't want to get out. There's just too many people that are important movers and shakers in the world and and there's a fear that it would just create too much chaos to the to this new world order that we're building towards so obviously it's become you know prevalent with this with we keep saying stuff in uh you know in the world economic forum and and, and efforts you know in china with the social credit system i think that's that's the goal of our of our ruling bourgeois elite and, uh, and they think that this will be just too much of a disruption to it uh, because it, at its very core you know, everybody, we might disagree on tax rates and energy policy and, and, and war. Nobody's in favor of abusing children. And if uh, the people that are the movers and shakers that are making decisions on tax policy and energy policy and war get called out for abusing kids, then uh, the, that whole agenda is going to fall by the wayside. And the agenda is everything. Like that is, it's almost religious. The secularist religion is the agenda that they're pushing. For. I, I would say I do disagree. I will push back that nobody agrees with abusing children because <laughs> it's now over 50% of Democrats agree with allowing children at these drag shows that are billed as all ages, family shows. It's blatant child abuse. If you saw the videos that were just put out uh, by Taylor Anson and um, Sarah, Sarah Gonzalez in Texas, I mean, these are indisputably some of the most disgusting child sexual abuse grooming material that you will see that is allowed on the internet and it's just barely allowed um and that's what's interesting actually i got a sensitive content warning slapped on my twitter account over sharing taylor got it taylor got suspended and yet the Democrats are totally cool with marketing this to children and bringing them to the shows to see simulated sex and nudity, but it's too sensitive for adults on Twitter to see. I think that says everything. But um, my last question, then you can ask, you might have a hundred more questions. No, I want to be respectful of Steve's time. This is such a great conversation, but we've gone over. I have just one, um, and that would be, you know, when you look at the FBI and everything you've experienced, are things so rotten, so poisoned that in its current iteration, there's no redemption for the FBI? Do you believe, like I do, that the FBI needs to be essentially torn to the, to the ground by the next administration, rebuilt in a new image entirely separate from D.C.? I think we need to move the entire agency out of D.C. in terms of HQ. Because I, I think that incestuous nature of D.C. is part of what has corrupted the FBI and also that 10 years is too long of a term for an FBI director that it leads to some of the corruption and ideological subversion we've seen come out of the FBI. What do you think? Uh, you've, you've echoed the sentiments that I've been expressing for the last several months. 
Uh, yes, move the headquarters. There's already uh, infrastructure in Red Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. There's a two and a half billion dollar facility that's uh, been you know they they said it was going to be for training, but you 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 can't move headquarters there. Huntsville is a is a great wonderful place. Uh, if you object to moving to Alabama from Washington D.C., then I have questions about: uh, Did you want to be a leader in the FBI, or do you want to just live in D.C.? You know, the, exactly. And the FBI is supposed to be nonpartisan. You should be out of the swamp. Uh, I think that you have to reverse engineer your thinking um, in order to make a decision about where you're going to invest your money. So if I came to you and said, "Look, I have uh, fifty dollars in a stock. Uh, and should I buy or should I sell it?" You, the best thing to do would say, "Well, if you had fifty dollars cash, would you buy this stock?" Or do you do something else with it? And that's where you would decide, you know, whether or not you're going to keep this stock or not. Same thing needs to be done to the FBI. Um, it takes $10 billion to fund the FBI in a given year. Uh, if you had $10 billion on the table and I presented an agency, as it's currently constituted, where you have a director who just walks out of mandated senatorial hearings, you have the, the, the Larry Nasser case happen, it, and it fall off from that. You have the Gretchen Whitmer entrapment case that's emerged. You have what's gone on with January 6th. But, with what's going on with the, the folks that are, are being arrested for praying outside of abortion clinics, put all of that on the table, good and bad. Would you give $10 billion to this agency? No, there's not a chance in the world. So there needs to be massive reform would be the minimum, uh, short of dissolution and reconstituting the FBI in ways. And, and, and I have my own ideas about, you know, what would be good ways to, to reform and, and Reform the FBI as it presently exists or to rebuild it from something from scratch, I think, is, is completely doable. Um, I think the next FBI director, if there's a, a new president in 2024, I imagine there's going to be a new FBI director in short order. Um, that needs to be uh, accepted. You know, If you said, hey, Steve, you want to be the FBI director? I say, yes. Two conditions. I have to work it remotely from Florida because I don't want to leave. And two, it's going to be a 12-month assignment because um, that gives me the window that I need to completely dismantle the organization. Awesome. Do you have any other questions? No, I um, just want to thank you on behalf of you know the American people. We are dealing with so many spineless people that are in positions of power that refuse to come forward and do the right thing, you know, by our constitution, by God, by the, the fellow Americans. And um, it, it's not easy to do the right thing. It requires risk and sacrifices. And I want to thank you for being willing to do that, for for being you know willing to give a voice to the truth to these issues. Um, and uh, continue to fight for our great republic. So thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate it. You keep fighting, and where can people follow you? Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, I am uh, uh, took the leap, uh, got on social media. I'm on uh, Twitter, uh, at real Steve Friend, and I'm on Truth, at real underscore Steve Friend. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us Thanks, today. Steve. Thank you. Hey guys, just want to thank our sponsor, Patriot Mobile, a fantastic Patriot-owned company that is challenging these big companies out there like AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, who themselves are taking your money and then giving it to organizations and endeavors that you don't agree with. So why not make the change today? Change to a company that is in alignment with your values that will fight for school boards to be flipped. Yes, Patriot Mobile did that. They will fight for the truth to get out there to people. That's what they're doing today by supporting this show. So if you want to be one of those people that is an actual change maker, that lives out their values, make the change today. If you're worried about service, do not worry. This company is working off of these same service standards that the major companies are. The trick is those companies, they want to make you believe that they're the only ones you can trust. But the truth is you can't trust them with your money. So make the change today. 
patreonmobile.com, promo code STARBUCK. Thank you again to Patriot Mobile for supporting us in our fight to share the truth with the world. Thanks for joining me on today's episode. If you liked what you heard, tag me on social media, repost clips from it, share it with your friends. You sharing our show is how we grow and it's how we get the truth out there. So if you want to help spread the truth and help wake people up, please go and share our show. Go to our website, RobbieStarbuck.com for more information or to watch old episodes. See you at the next episode.